Hey everyone, Joe Graves here, pastor of Central City Church, and it's uh, it's good to be with you. Before we get into the sermon, I just wanted to stop in and say hi. I had this unique experience this week where uh, the uh, daughter of one of my neighbors, who, who I've never met before, they live down the street from me, uh, the daughter came and told me that her mom listens to the podcast and uh, really appreciates the, the sermons. And um, it kind of blew me away. I, I kind of forgot that there are people who listen to the podcast who aren't a part of our church or who I've never met. And so if that's you, I just want to, you to know um, that I'm really grateful that you're here and that you're checking us out, whether you consider this your church home or not. Uh, really glad that you could be here and, and, and would love to connect with you. So if there's some way that I can um, uh, pray for you or support you, please let me know. I also want to let you know that if you're a regular listener or you've engaged in our community in one way or another, um, we'd love to uh, connect with you or get you involved, whether that means uh, find a place where you can serve in or outside the church or be in community with other people like a small group or even give if you aren't giving already. Um, I've found giving to be really a beautiful way to live out our faith, to uh, invite God into our lives through generosity. Um, God is the most generous force in the universe, literally giving life to all things, and we become more like God when we're generous as well. So whether you give to our church or somewhere else, the act of giving is really beautiful. But if you want to give to our church and enable us to continue to do ministry, like City Kids, our children's ministry, small groups, Bible studies, worship on Sundays— and as a mission and outreach, which we're in the early stages of dreaming about what we might do to make a tangible difference in the world, you can go to um, to give if you want to. Go to centralcity.co slash give, and uh, that's centralcity.co slash give. And we'd, uh, we're really grateful for everyone who already does and enables us to do the ministry that God has called us to. So with that said, here is today's sermon. So we're in a series right now on Jesus' emotions, what it means to have emotions. And for Jesus to have emotions, we thought it'd be, uh, well, actually, it was someone else's idea, Travis, I think. He said it would be kind of cool um, to, you know, one of the ways in which we express emotions in life is through poetry. So each week, if possible, we're sharing a little poem. Today, our very own Avery has a poem for us that he's going to read uh, that I think connects well to what we're going to talk about today. To the feelers, to the lonely... To any one of us imprisoned by literal existence, please, for just one moment, listen. Not to me, but to the stories of this world written in the air we breathe, while the voice of the wind reads them so gracefully. Listen. There is so much here to live for, and sometimes it's easy to completely turn off our minds to search and not find one reason to keep going. If you're ever there, my dear, please, listen. I know you love music and this world is all but silent. Every one of us has a rhythmic heartbeat you see and hear. We are each our own chord and out there, there is a symphony threading a lyrical haven. We have cityscapes buzzing with creation pasted across a sky that echoes ballads every time the sun comes and goes. We have an unseen world that lives beneath sailboats. Bobbing in the harbor like dancing piano keys, we have blades of grass whispering as they kiss the spines of star-crossed lovers. We have bugs humming perspective at how big our footprint is. We have ranges that carry sound like they carry the earth who tucks in bellowing roots of our trees. We have seahorses growling in danger and clicking in love and mountainous fermatas carrying a rustling ground beneath our boots. As if that's not enough, we have lakes 
lakes that are chiming with reflections. We have a breeze that's strumming fields of flowers. Every exploding dandelion is a crescendo of its own. In here, there is an orchestra pulsing with every door closing and opening. We have lullabies weaved into our children's blankets. We have lullabies weaved into our blankets. We have relationships building and breaking everyday cadence. In every tone, we have things we are making, so we must know volume is something we should be giving and not taking. And beneath our skin, there are instruments playing only the way you let them. And sometimes I know it takes practice to find the right note at the right time. But the moon is my tuner, the same way it mumbles to the waves conducting their delicate tumble. My lungs are acoustic while my mind is electric. If you listen to every piece of this world, it's so beautiful. It's not only musical, it's poetic. Wow. Next, uh, next week, we, we discuss the motion of anger. And uh, so if you have a poem that you've written or a poem that you love that someone else wrote that connects with anger, that, that, that emotion, um, let me know. We'd love for you to share it, or uh, uh, someone else can read it for you, even, if, if that's uh, you're interested. Today, though, we're going to talk about happiness. So you came on the right day. The Declaration of Independence. The found, in, the, in the Declaration of Independence, the Founding Fathers wrote this. This is like in the second paragraph. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I don't need to mention to you all that this statement at the time referred only to white men, excluding women and people of color. So I'm in no way saying that this is an ideal that, it, that we need to inspire. But, but today, I hope that these words can apply to all Americans. And I would go a step further and say, let's imagine that these words applied to all people, that everyone created by God, deserve to be happy. Do you, do you believe that? That everyone deserves to be happy. I was, I was reading a little bit about this phrase, the pursuit of happiness. Um, Brent Strawn, who teaches religion and theology in Emory's Candler School of Theology, uh, he, he wrote a book called The Bible and the Pursuit of Happiness. And he explained that when we dig into the context of the Declaration of Independence, the original writers uh, didn't mean just that we had a right to pursue happiness. This is what he says. He says the actual intent was that they had the right, that we as Americans had the right to be happy. He, he explains the difference here in, in, in this article. Um, seeking happiness is one thing, but actually obtaining it and experiencing it, practicing happiness, is an entirely different matter. It's the difference between dreaming and reality. Remember that the pursuit of happiness in the Declaration is not a quest or a pastime, but an, an unalienable right. Everyone has the right to actually be happy, not just try to be happy. To use a metaphor, you don't just get the chance to make the baseball team, you're guaranteed a spot. That's a very different understanding, he says. So he argues that the, the original intent is that you have the right to be happy according to the Declaration of Independence. Well, what does God say about that? 
Today we're going to continue this series on emotions, uh, specifically the emotions that Jesus experienced while on earth. And as you could probably guess, we're going to talk about where Jesus was filled with joy. And I want to start with this differentiation between pursuing happiness and actually being happy. Because here's what I found from the little bit of research I did on joy. And what I see even from Jesus' example, chasing after happiness, the pursuit of happiness, doesn't always make us happy. In fact, sometimes the chasing after happiness, the pursuit of happiness, we end up unhappy as a result. So if you're taking notes, if you, if you like to take notes, if, you're, if, you're, if that's the thing, then it's something you might want to write down. Chasing after happiness doesn't usually make us happy because here's the thing, and we're going to talk about this a couple of different ways. We're humans, so we are really bad at figuring out what makes us happy. That's the bad news. We're really bad at it. And there's a better way, and hopefully by the time of today, we'll have some new ideas on how to go about this. So to help us, we're going to look at a story of Jesus. It'll serve as the backdrop for our conversation. And then after that, I want to share some modern evidence-based research on happiness from scholars from Yale and Berkeley and other places. So let's start with a story where we see Jesus truly happy. In fact, it's one of the few places in the Gospels that say Jesus was just filled with joy. So super, super happy Jesus. You can find it in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. If you want to follow along, you can read the words. They'll be on the screen as we go along. Uh, you can also pull out the black Bible in your pews and find Luke 10. Luke is in the sort of the second half of the Bible. It's right after the uh, Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. And it's right before the Gospel of John. So these are the four Gospels that tell the story of Jesus. Um, and we're going to look at Luke, chapter 10. In this story, Jesus is with his disciples, but not just 12 of them, like a whole group of them, about actually a little bit more than who, who are here. There's probably about 50 or so of us here. There was 72 there, so it was like a small church similar to the size. That's how many people Jesus was with. He was hanging out with his 12 disciples, were probably amongst them, but a whole other group, a whole congregation of people, and he's training them to be like him. He spent time teaching and mentoring and discipling them. And in this story, he then sends them out to go be like him. So it's like if we all left to go out into the world for a while on a little mission trip to be like Jesus. So that's what he does. Now, I don't know what that feels like. Uh, you almost have to imagine that it's like a, a, the feeling that a parent gets when they send their kids to college for the first time. You know that feeling? I don't know that feeling, not yet. But I, but I remember dropping Finn off at kindergarten for the first time. Ooh. It's like kind of terrifying, you know? Um, will he be all right? Is he going to behave? Will he be safe? Will he find his classroom? Will he listen? Probably not. So Jesus is sending his disciples out into the world to be like him. All of these 72 people um, out there. And, and, and they're meant to be Jesus in the world, be like Jesus, which means they're going to be doing some pretty supernatural things. Um, or at least that's what Jesus' hope is. So they go out, and we're going to start reading when they return. So what does the return look like? So they go out, and then they return. Luke 10, starting with verse 17, it says this. The 72 people returned with joy. So we, so we know this is a story about being happy, right? Right here from the start. They're pretty jazzed. They're pretty excited. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Even the demons Submit to us in your name. That's kind of uh, some epic stuff right there. Like I said, some pretty supernatural stuff. 
But don't miss it. We see this first example of joy. They go on a mission trip. They come back. They're pumped. They're feeling powerful. They're feeling accomplished. They feel important. They're, they're able to make forces in this world bend to their will. That's what they say. Now, now I thought about downplaying the demons in this story because uh, we're intellectuals. You know, I don't believe in demons. Not, not in the traditional sense. You know, they're maybe metaphors for the evil in the world or the metaphor for temptation or brokenness, darkness world, not persons, so to speak. Now, whether you believe in demons or whether you think of it more metaphorically, that's not important to the story. The, the thing that's important is that they, that's how they interpreted the evil in the world. And still to this day, we stood up here in our baptism vows and said, we reject the evil forces of this world. We say it generically like that. We reject there are evil forces in this world. If you're not aware of that, there are evil forces in this world. I've encountered them. I've experienced them. I've participated in them at times unwillingly. So they believe that that's how they interpreted the evil forces in the world and the darkness that they encountered. And they found that the evil was being corrected or put in its place in Jesus' name. So imagine that if you lived... Just imagine you lived in a chaotic, broken world. And no matter how hard you tried to make things better, it didn't get better. Nothing ever really improved. That nothing changed. And then, all of a sudden, you're told that when you do things like Jesus, for Jesus, with Jesus' authority, which is what it means to do it in Jesus' name. You're doing it like Jesus, for Jesus, in Jesus' authority. That the world actually did get better. Imagine that one day you can't seem to change anything in your life or other people's lives, and all of a sudden the next day you're having this huge impact, and the world is changing for the better, and the only difference was the person, example, and teachings and authority of Jesus that you're now doing them in Jesus' name. Imagine if all of a sudden living like Jesus started to change the world. Just imagine. When they say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name, that's ultimately what they're saying, however you look at it. Real change was happening. Brokenness and darkness and evil was being broken. If you were able to do real good, deliver and liberate people who are struggling, how would you feel? If you were able to watch your friends do real good in the world, how would you feel? Joy? Happiness? No, that's how I would feel. So here's how Jesus responds. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the Spirit submits to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Once again, there's a lot of apocalyptic and supernatural stuff in here, which usually means it's a lot of metaphor. And I don't want to downplay that, and you'll see why later. Whether real or imagined or a vision, or maybe he's speaking in metaphor, we can't say. But whatever it is, Jesus sees Satan, the ultimate personification for all that is wrong in the world, fall. Evil was being defeated. Jesus came to defeat evil, to liberate us from evil. So imagine how Jesus felt seeing evil Take a hit. Seeing the problems in this world uh, fall, the brokenness, the hurt, the pain, how do you think that felt to see it happen? We don't have to imagine. Jesus, uh, Luke tells us, verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this is what 
you were pleased to do. Full of joy, or, or one translation, overfilled with joy. This is one of the few places in the Bible where it explicitly says, in, in the Gospels, where it explicitly says Jesus was happy. Right here. He sends out his, his disciples on mission like a father sending his kid to school, and they return having done the impossible. Last week, we gave you a feelings wheel. Some of you got one on your way in. If you don't have one, I think there might be still some copies in the back, although I, I think we're running a little thin, but be sure to grab one. If you don't have one, get it on it. It shows you a whole bunch of different feelings uh, labeled in different colors, and it's, you know, you got your core emotions in the center, and it kind of spins out from there, and I had some people who work in mental health look at this first to make sure it was a useful tool, and they said it was. So this is a very interesting, you know, being able to identify how you feel is very useful, and all of life as a parent or as a spouse, to be able to say, here's where I'm at right now, and that really is an effective way to uh, be in a healthier relationship with you. So it shows a lot of different feelings. So let's speculate today how Jesus was feeling. Um, we're going to go to the yellow slice today and look at happy. Um, and uh, I would say, and I think I got some slides for each one of these, Tim. I would say that Jesus was, might have been proud, uh, proud of his disciples, right? You send them out to do something, they actually do what they are asked to do. And uh, I'm, again, thinking through this uh, through the lens of a parent. Very impressive when that happens. They had done what they were asked to do. Uh, so there's like a kind of a proud uh, sense. He was clearly thankful because he gives thanks and praise to God in, in the prayer. So we would put uh, the next one as uh, thankful. Um, he might have even been inspired and hopeful. You know, when we see good things happen in the world, we see good overcome evil. Um, it does that, right? It inspires us. It makes us like, okay, yeah, this is pretty cool. So you could put the next one up, uh, and, and hopeful or inspired. And there's also, I think, if, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but you could really do a whole sermon on this. There's a little bit of joy. Jesus might be experiencing joy because uh, that God would choose these people. That everyday people without degrees or special roles, that's what he says, like that he revealed this to children. It's a metaphor for common, everyday, not special people. He says that everyday people do amazing things in Jesus' name might give them a sense of justice, that, 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 that the vulnerable are being lifted up. And so um, might give them a sense of that even in this, if this world doesn't accept or respect or value you, you still have value and respect and acceptance in God. Watching God use unexpected people or watching underdogs, you know, get the win. I mean, every, I love underdog stories, whether it's uh, about a football player or whatever. Like, it's always a great story. And I, you see this a little bit happening under the surface with Jesus. These people who are doing amazing things were normal, everyday, uh, low-class sort of people. And it's inspiring. It gives us a sense that maybe we could do something great with our lives as well. So these might have been some of the feelings that Jesus was feeling based on uh, this passage. Now, I can't go further without saying it's also clear in verse 21 that Jesus, his joy came from the Holy Spirit. It was, it was a product of a supernatural sort of mystical experience, a gift from God, something profound that we can't fully understand, the gift of the Spirit, um, and that'll be important later on, so hold on to that. But Jesus' joy was also balanced and healthy here. Back in verse 20, he tells his disciples, don't be happy 
that you have the supernatural power to boss around demons, okay? He says, be happy, and we're going to, I'm doing some interpretation here, and I don't have time to explain it, but I'm happy to talk about it later. He says, don't be happy that you can boss around demons. Be happy that you're in the family of God. This touches a little bit on what we talked about last week, that, that you are more than what you do. And that who you belong to, where you belong, who you are, your identity is more important than just the things that you're able to accomplish. So don't rejoice in what you're capable of doing or in your own power, but rejoice in who you belong to and rejoice in who you are. So finding contentment in who God says you are instead of what you can accomplish in your life. But it's not the only secret uh, to happiness. So I want us to hold on to this story. You kind of get the story. It's not a complicated story. Hold on to it. We're going to kind of use it as a backdrop. And um, a story where it's clear that everyone's feeling pretty good about themselves. They're feeling pretty positive. Jesus is filled with joy, and so is his followers. Hold on to it. And now I want to compare it to what I've learned about happiness from the happiness experts. Uh, to do this, I had the chance to listen to a number of podcasts uh, on happiness. Uh, anyone else uh, listen to podcasts? Got some podcast listeners in the house? Yeah? There's some great ones on happiness. Um, two specifically were very helpful. One is called the Happiness Lab. Happiness Lab is uh, by a, a Yale professor. She did a whole class on happiness and made it a public opportunity. You could go take this class to the public. It was open to the public for free. And then she did this, this podcast based on that class. So the Happiness Lab is a great little podcast. The other one is Hidden Brains. They did a whole series on happiness 2.0. So I'm pulling extensively from a lot of these ideas. If you want to know where I got these ideas or who said them specifically, you can go check out those podcasts. So to start, I'm going to offer a definition of happiness because there's nothing that makes us more excited than definitions. So this is really meant for your happiness. Um, so uh, here's a definition that someone provided. Uh, the uh, author of how, The How of Happiness uh, in this interview said this about happiness. Happiness has two components. So happiness has two components. The experience of positive emotions is the first one. So things like tranquility, pride, enthusiasm, joy, affection. This yellow slice of the emotions wheel. Part of happiness is experiencing these emotions. Now, there's other emotions on here that I would say are positive based on how you experience them. But the, the idea is the yellow one's a lot of seriously positive emotions. So part of happiness is experiencing these emotions. The second part is having a sense that life is good and that you're satisfied with how life is progressing towards a particular goal, that you're able to uh, feel good about where you're headed. In other words, she explains that you need both to be happy in your life and with your life. Right? So it's like, okay, I'm, I'm experiencing happiness in my life, but I'm also happy with my life. Like I'm happy with where I'm going. So on the one hand, you have to experience positive emotions. And on the other hand, you're satisfied with what you're doing and how your life is progressing, which is um, you know, why when we reach kind of goals that we, we've had, we can feel kind of happy. Like if you were to send your disciples out to do something and they were actually successful, you might feel pretty good about that in, in theory. So the question becomes, how do we feel more positive emotions and how can we be happier in our life? Well, after listening to a handful of podcasts, I come up with my own little list, I'm pulling extensively from these. I'm going to share with you four secrets to happiness. So welcome to self-help 
Sunday, um, and this is going to solve all of your problems. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. I actually do think these are helpful. Um, they're not going to apply to everyone. Um, you got to make sense of your life for, for yourself. But, you know, I do think these are really helpful, and they help me, so I'm going to share them with you. Here's the first one. It has to do with expectations. I've listed it as an equation because my son's really into math right now, so you're welcome. Happiness equals reality minus expectations. That'll preach. I'm going to preach it right now. <laughs> Happiness equals reality. Now, some of you are like, what is going on there? And I know it's a complicated equation, and I get it. It took me a while to think it through as well. Uh, here's what I mean by that. Happiness is rooted in expectations. Think of it this way. I Don't judge me. Well, you can judge me if you want, but I'd prefer if you didn't. I get upset sometimes with customer service people, okay? I'm guessing I'm not the only person. Um, and I've thought about why I get upset, you know, especially like over the phone. And it's because I expect them to fix my problems, okay? That's the expectation I go into the call. I have a, I'm not calling you because I want to chat, all right? I'm calling you because I have a problem. I need you to fix it, all right? I'm, I'm trying to get insurance to fix a problem right now and not a fan, okay? And... Uh, yeah, so I, I'm the customer. This is how I think. This is how I sometimes operate. I'm the customer. I'm always right, so they say. And I pay for their company. You know, I'm the reason the company exists. I'm the one who's paying, right? This is, this is a high level of confidence in Joe sometimes on the phone. And uh, customers like me are the reason, so they, you work for me. That's sometimes my attitude. And so when I call someone, I expect them to fix my problems. And when they don't fix my problems, what happens? I get a little frustrated. Anyone else ever been frustrated before? Just a few of you. We'll hang out later. We're mad at the rest of you, though. Um, and, and, you know, uh, I get angry even sometimes. We're going to look at that emotion next week, you know. And, and, yes, Jesus got angry, too. And Jesus got angry because the religious rulers of his time weren't living up to what he believed God's expectations were. So it's not always bad, but it's not always good either. So getting angry at a customer service person, not helpful. And this is what helps me. I, I try to change my perspective. I try to change my expectations a little bit. Uh, I remind myself of this. The people I'm talking to are humans. Probably don't get paid that much, <laughs> you know. They're just doing what they were trained to do. They, they probably need this job to take care of themselves, maybe even take care of their family. They are loved by God, and it's not their fault. And when I remind myself of these very simple truths, my expectations for that person change. Do, do you see how this works? And then I talk to them as a human, and I, I say, look, I know this isn't your fault. You're just doing your job, but I, I really need help here. You know, how can we make this right? When I go about it this way, I can leave the conversation, not necessarily with the problem solved, but feeling much more better about myself, and I probably didn't ruin their day either. Uh, so maybe not happy, but more content. The, the simple truth about expectation is, is especially important for relationships. I have found a significant amount of pain in our marriages and in our friendships come from unspoken expectations. You're living into an expectation that may or may not be real. You expect certain things. And this is especially true in church. You expect certain things in church. And if it doesn't live up to that expectation, you might be really upset or you might feel bad about yourself. So we go into relationships of all kinds assuming certain things. And when those things aren't met, we can become unhappy. 
One of the things you can do, and you have to do if you've been with anyone for an extended period of time, is think through what expectations you had that aren't being met and wonder, are those reasonable expectations or is that going to happen? Um, if we learn to acknowledge our expectations and, and we refrain from projecting them onto people, especially without telling them, or we learn to have honest conversations, like, hey, I need this with the people that we're in relationship with, happiness becomes much more likely. For example, certain people expect certain things from me because I'm a pastor. You know, and you could fill it in with any role. Because I'm a wife, because I'm a husband, because I'm a customer service rep, there's certain expectations that come with those roles. And I'm going to be honest with you, I can't even keep track of all the expectations. I can't. But I will tell you this. The number one reason people get upset with me, and I would probably suggest the number one reason people have gotten upset with you, your spouse, your friend, your parent, is because there was an expectation you didn't meet. And so happiness though, equals reality, what really is happening in the moment, what, you know, reality, minus those expectations. So I want to hold on to that. We're going to see how this plays out as we look at a few others. Here's the second one. Uh, it's also sort of an equation. Not a little, all of them are, but whatever. Um, experiences are greater than material things. It's based on research. Experiences, doing things in life, will create longer, more fulfilling happiness than buying things. Um, the big reason for this is it, when you have an experience, it produces happiness on both the front end and the back end. So when you plan an experience, you have all this joy in the anticipation of it, and that becomes very meaningful. And then when you have the experience, on the other side, you have this joy retelling it. And you can experience that same joy every time you tell the story of that experience. So experience over the long haul produces more happiness than stuff. Now, we have an entire industry this isn't even my notes, but, but, but it's important to say we have an entire industry that spends billions of dollars to try to convince you that stuff's going to make you happy. And the reality is this stuff does make you happy for a moment. And so you get a little bit of joy, a little bit of serotonin kicks off when you buy that new thing, but it becomes, it, it diminishes very quickly. And that, that's, just, that's just what science says. So we have to recognize that. Uh, so they... And, and, and really, part of this has to do with expectations. And, and, and when you buy something that you really wanted for a long time, you expect it to make you happy. So when you've purchased it and you're the same person you always were, feeling the same way you were before, you're almost less happy. Because now, not only did it not make you happy, but you're mad about it. You know, and this is a big part of how expectations play into our happiness. So um, if you're looking to feel better, you got to look for an experience. We're going to just keep compounding this and adding on to it, especially experiences with people you love, which is number three. They have found meaningful relationships create greater happiness to your life over the long haul than wealth or work accomplishments or career. Investing in meaningful, this is, none of this is brain, this is, we kind of know this already, right? But we forget it. Investing in meaningful relationships will produce more joy over a long period of time than investing in wealth in your career. One of the things I've heard over and over again in these various experts is that the things we think will make us happy don't. We tend to tell ourselves that if we had more money or a better house or a better position at work, then we'd be happy. In fact, they go as far as to say this, and I thought it was a really great quote I had to share with you. Our minds just really suck at predicting the things we think will make us happier. Scientists said that, and I love that they use the word suck. If you need to remember anything, it's this. What you think will make you happy might not. 
you know, for example, they give this example, you might want to stay in bed and watch TV or eat ice cream, and there might be a little joy in that or a momentary joy, or maybe that's what you need at the moment. But more often than not, you'll have bigger return on your happiness if you go out and you do something meaningful or fun with the people you care about. You might think you just, if you got a promotion, and then, then you'll be happy. But what you will find is that, and I, I, I really related to this. They said I, this one person was going after a promotion. They finally got the promotion, and then they realized they were the same person on the other side of the promotion. Nothing had changed. They felt the same way. In fact, I was meeting with someone this week, and they shared that exact, not knowing that's what I was going to talk about, told me that story. They said, I was going after all of these promotions in my career, hoping that would fill this hole in my life, blah, blah, blah. And they got the promotion. It didn't change anything. I was still me. But the expectation of it actually made them feel worse. Um, So we have to go after the right stuff. There's, There's a reason why. When people are on their deathbed, they don't talk about, you know, man, I wish I would have worked more. I wish I would have done better in my career. They usually talk about how they wish they would have spent more time with their families and friends. Building meaningful relationships and doing experiences, it will produce more happiness in your life than wealth, work, and status combined. So I've been pretty busy lately. I've been working on my house. Uh, It's been kicking my butt. And I've put hours into my house for two months now, which means I have not spent a lot of time with my son, Finn. Just yesterday, as I started working, he asked me if I could play the Wii. We have an old school Wii, all right? Classic Wii, the one that makes you move. Mm. I don't know whose idea that was. And he's like, I said, you can play the Wii at any point. He's like, oh, no, Dad, I want to hang out with you. Okay. That hits you right in the heart, doesn't it? Well, I was working on this sermon, and uh, I was feeling pretty down, just overall exhausted. I was reading about how to be happy, and I decided to put it to the test. So on Wednesday, I pick up Finn from school. when He gets out of school around 3.30, and and we went to Coastside, which closes at 5, so we had about an hour to be there. And I wanted to, you know, just test out, invest in an experience, you know, with someone that I love. Now, if you remember, it just was the perfect day. Wednesday, 71 degrees. It was amazing. as long as you don't think about why it was 71 degrees in February or March, um, it's great. Um, and we walked around, and, and you have to understand, I've been tired because I've been tired, and, and because I was tired, I've been grumpy and in a bad mood, and I've not been happy this week, and that's usually how it works for pastors. They have to preach on the thing they're not, and uh, not, you don't have to feel sorry for me. It's just, you know, life, and we're all human. We experience the full wheel of the human emotion, but I wasn't feeling happy, but as I walked around with Finn, and we played games, and we chatted, and we just spent time outside of the house where all of my projects are, I was like, I felt sincerely, authentically happy. And as soon as I felt that, I was like, those damn experts were right. <laughs> like, this worked. Think, but Jesus was right, too. Think about this, the story of Jesus, right? They created an experience. And they went on a little mission trip. They did it with people that they were in relationship with. And experiences with people you care about is a major source of happiness. In other words, like, Jesus didn't get pumped because he had bought a new tunic, you know, that's not the story. He was excited because he was doing something. He created an event where the people he cared about were able to do something really cool, which leads us, um, and, and it even experienced something kind of wonderful. So here's the last point, and uh, it, it, it departs from this conversation a little bit, but it's really important. Number four is to experience wonder. 
In the Hidden Brain podcast, they interviewed Dr. Keltner, who's out of Berkeley. He studies happiness and specifically how it intersects with wonder or awe um, and how we experience things that are really amazing, you know? You know what I mean? Like, how many have been to the Grand Canyon? A few of you. Do you remember the first time you walked up to it? And you're like, I don't, my brain's not processing this correctly. Like, I, how, you know what I mean? Like, if, how many have climbed to the top of a mountain and looked out over the vista? Anyone, anyone done that? Yeah, a few of you, yeah. Yeah, you remember that feeling? That's that feeling of awe, you know? It's when, when, when we're just, we see something, experience something, and our, and our senses can't make sense of it. So we're just blown away by it. Keltner uh, from Berkeley defines awe as this. Awe is the feeling we get when we encounter vast mysteries that we can't explain. That feeling we get in our body when our senses are like, well, I, I don't know what to do with this. This is amazing. How can something be so big, this so perfect, so beautiful, so emotional, so deep? Like, this is too much. That's what's happening when our brain, uh, we experience something that gives us a sense of awe. It's, it's when we encounter something that's beautifully mysterious, beyond our comprehension. For some people, this beautiful, mysterious experience can be found even in mystical experiences. And by that, I mean, you know, supernatural experiences. Like you feel like you've touched the heart of God. You had a moment where you felt a profound connection with the divine. The Irish would call it where the thin spaces where heaven and earth seem to meet. And maybe if you're here, you've had at one point in your life this sort of divine experience. Not everyone gets that kind of experience, but few of us um, have it. Some people spend all of their time looking for it. And I think that's interesting. That's why I didn't want to downplay the conversation around the demons and and the supernatural component of the story because, because experiencing something mysterious or mystical or profound is, is one of the ways in which we can open ourselves up to joy, deep, overflowing joy, like, oh, my days, I don't understand. This is amazing. So theologically, we would say that joy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It talks about how Jesus was filled with joy from the Holy Spirit. Later, it talks about how joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Theologically, we'd say joy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. God gives you joy. From a social science perspective, we would say that if you were to experience something mystically mysterious like the Holy Spirit or the divine, something profound and mysterious, it would give you a sense of awe and open you up to joy. So we know that joy is from the Holy Spirit, but experiencing something like the Holy Spirit or the divine God would certainly fill you with awe and give you joy. And I think these are just different ways of talking about the same experience. So here's how it works. Here's how it works. Experiences of awe are, are a bit like a reset button. They help us figure out what's important in life and, and, and what's important in life. One might say they kind of put our expectations into perspective because happiness is tied to expectations. So in other words, when you're standing in front of the Grand Canyon and it's taking your breath away, that email that was bothering you early in the day doesn't seem to matter as much anymore. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like When you experience something that's truly beautiful and it kind of takes your breath away, uh, it, it tends to make us feel small, but like in a really good way. It, it quiets our ego and helps us feel more connected to uh, the world around us. It reminds us of how connected we are to all the big things around us, and it reminds us of what is important. So when we're experiencing something that's awe-inspiring, we're, we're not thinking about whether we should buy something on Amazon or we're not thinking about you know, this job promotion. If we experience something truly beautiful and awe-inspiring, you're thinking about often how you can experience it with the people you care about. Do you see how all this connects? So if you're looking for happiness, you find, ex uh, find experience that will help you feel wonder. 
Um, for me, I've found this to be very rewarding as somebody who's struggled with uh, mental health and anxiety, depression, things like that. Uh, I find hiking, and not only the exercise to be very rewarding, but specifically hiking where there's big trees. Uh, looking up and finding wonder in nature is a place. But for you, uh, I encourage you to think what it might be. For some people, it's music. You're just blown away by music or art or nature or worship or prayer. All of these can give us a sense of awe. But you have to find something every once in a while to reset by finding something that takes your breath away. Here's the craziest part of this whole idea that I, that I think will really bring this home. As part of their research there at Berkeley, they sent out a survey to people all around the world asking for stories of times they experienced something wonderful, beautiful, awe-inspiring. And here's what they found. And I thought this was so interesting, especially as people who claim to follow Jesus. They found that from stories all over the world, the most common story of awe wasn't nature, music, art. It was what they categorized as moral beauty. They got back stories of people, everyday common people, not these famous do-gooders, but common everyday people doing something generous, kind, compassionate, or loving to people in ways that were often surprising or awe-inspiring. Acts of compassion and kindness were one of the most common examples of experiencing something beautiful, awe-inspiring in the world. So when we, we see someone do something radically generous or compassionate, or we hear a story about it and it's done in a, in, a, in a way, it gives us a similar feeling sometimes as looking at art or the Grand Canyon. It inspires us. So if you can't find something that takes your breath away, you could choose to live in a way that takes someone else's breath away. Now, I want to end with this very simple summary, and then we're going to stand for our closing song. In, in summary, uh, if I was to pull all of this together, if you want to be happy, this is going to work for everyone, but this is a good place to start. Plan an experience without unhealthy expectations with people you care about, doing something kind and compassionate for others that connects us with the mysterious or divine and forces us to stop and appreciate the wonder in the world. That's what research would say. Now, here's what I, let's be honest. Think about that. Doesn't that feel like a pretty good description of what the church should be about? Experience something with the people you care about, doing good things, kind and compassionate things that connects you to something that you don't fully understand and forces you to stop and appreciate all the wonder in the world. I would say that we probably don't always excel at this, but man, this is, what, this is one of the things that we're trying to do is we experience God together, experience each other's love together, and engage in a world where we resist evil and overcome it with good. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the ways in which you show up with us. And we ask that we, you would give us opportunities that in all of creation, um, whether it be your presence or something in creation or the acts of other people, that you would give us opportunities to connect with something beautiful that reminds us of what's important in life, helps us to reset, and that you would help us be that to other people. We ask all this in your name. Amen.